from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA, the true story of a retired U.S. spy. My first assignment abroad was uh, working, if you will, behind the Iron Curtain. North Korea's missiles and their stunning reversal. A few months ago, he wanted to shoot the missiles and try and tried it to start a war. Mm-hmm. And now he want to join the Olympic with the South Korea. The safety of U.S. commercial aviation. In my uh, almost six months as the TSA administrator, uh, I've seen um, the threat uh, information. It's, it's almost constant. The 25th anniversary of the World Trade Center bombing. You felt the earth shake, felt the bomb. We didn't know what it was. You couldn't really see out the windows because it was it was a snowy, cold, foggy day. Kremlin assassins in the U.S. Then they came in to shoot me again in the head and the gun jammed. The shooter cleared the weapon. He tried again and the gun jammed again. 2018 has been a busy year. There have been many stories in what seems like an unending cycle of breaking news. We've covered all of the major stories of the year, and on this program we bring you a few of the most interesting stories from 2018. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. This is a look back at the big stories of 2018, not necessarily the same stories that you heard, saw, or read in other media, but that you engaged in on Target USA. One of the most compelling stories we did in 2018 was that of Mark Kelton, a retired CIA officer who had a very interesting career. Episode 100 was where he told his story. Well, uh, J.J., I didn't plan to become an intelligence officer. Uh, most people don't. It's not the normal profession one sets out to, to, uh, to, to take on. I came out of uh, college at the University of New Hampshire and then graduate school at the Fletcher School and applied to CIA as an analyst. Um, that was a natural transition for me. I specialized in uh, security studies and Soviet studies. Uh, I joined CIA in, in the fall of 1981, uh, but never worked as an analyst. I was uh, in my training at CIA. They said, well, would you like to be an operations officer? I didn't know what an operations <laughs> officer was. Uh, in fact, I'd never been overseas before. So, so what's the difference? Well, an analyst is... Uh, 
produce Finnish intelligence. The operations officer collects intelligence. Mm-hmm. Operations officers have their life primarily overseas uh, or focused on the foreign field. Um, and as I said, I'd never been overseas before uh, and had really at that time, of course, there was no signs outside CIA headquarters at that time. And there wasn't that weren't that many books written about what it was like to work in what's called the Directorate of Operations in CIA. So my experience was only what I really uh, took on during my training at CIA. So somebody approached me and said, we think you can be an operations officer. And I said, would you, would you want to do it? And I said, well, I'll take it. I'll try. I'll mm-hmm. try. And uh, I never looked back. A great decision uh, and a great honor for you, me. Yeah. So, so what were some of your early assignments then? Well, uh, after, after training uh, as an operations officer at CIA, which is very rigorous and remains so today, uh, I was sent to... Uh, Eastern Europe, uh, mm-hmm. into Czechoslovakia, communist mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia. It's not the same Czechoslovakia or Czech Republic as today. Czechoslovakia then, my memories of it are black and white. Uh, it was and alternately it, thrilling and terrifying to work there. <laughs> so now explain the, 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 the black and white pieces. Now, is that a reference to the era? The era. Or, okay. The era. Uh, and it was grim. Uh, Prague today, of course, is a beautiful city, and thank God democracy has come to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but um, the fact of the matter is, back then, the uh, the communist Czechoslovakia was a repressive state. Mm-hmm. Uh, the It was an era of the Iron Curtain. I tell my students there was a Cold War. I lived it. Uh, so my first, my first assignment abroad was uh, working, be, if you will, behind the Iron Curtain mm-hmm. uh, against a, a very... Um, Capable adversary. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that was my first my first job, and as I said, it was alternately thrilling and terrifying to do that. And if you listen to episode one hundred, you'll hear that chilling story of the day that he was dispatched to deposit something in a mailbox secretly, quietly. But he was so nervous, he was sweating, and because of the cold, the mailbox clanked to the ground with a loud crash. Episode one hundred two of this year was the bizarre turnaround from North Korea's Kim Jong-un. He went from wanting to destroy all of his enemies, including South Korea, to going to the Olympics as one team. Grace Jo, who managed to escape from North Korea, told us she wasn't buying it. You're you're suspicious of the motive to participate in the Olympics. You're not not certain that Kim Jong-un or his regime is really interested in rejoining the world community, but there may be some other, other motive. Is that correct? Um, yes, that, that's well, what I that, that's well, what I think. What, what, what do you think may be his objective? Uh, it's a little hard. <laughs> hmm. um, but like a few months ago, he wanted to shoot the missiles and try, try to start a war. Mm-hmm. And now he want to join the Olympic with the South Korea. All of a sudden. Yeah, all of a sudden. So it changes so suddenly. And um, um, they always said, well, South Korea is their enemy now. And they don't want to work together and so and so. But suddenly they be- want to become uh, one team in, in Olympics. So to me, it's, it's very um, suspicious. Like maybe North Korea got something from South Korea or mm-hmm. um, they, they want something from South Korea later or um, what they, they already fulfilled their need. I don't know. Uh, but I, I think North Korea uh, will not involve without any cost. 
Yeah, so basically, you think there's a bribe involved? I think so. Something North Korea got something in return, some some money or some kind of Yeah, not even not yet. Maybe they will look for something Mm -hmm. later. So if that were the case, if that's the case, um, do you think it was a good idea to do that, to, to give them something for this, do you think? Well, as a citizen, no, because that will um, strengthen their government more. Mm-hmm. Um, and once the government got strengthened and powerful, the citizens are suffering there mm-hmm. because citizens' voice will get uh, powerless. Mm-hmm. So as a citizen, I don't agree, but... Um, if that brings peace, maybe temporarily that might work. Mm-hmm. But for long run, for North Korean citizens, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that's a good idea. Since that time, Kim Jong-un has had his now famous meeting with U.S. President Donald Trump talking about denuclearization. But very little has happened, making Grace Joe's suspicions seem more realistic than ever. Moving on to our next story. If you've flown anywhere in the United States or from anywhere to the United States this year, you've had to pull out all of your electronics that are larger than a cell phone. And a part of the reason for that is concerns that TSA had about explosives. We talk with TSA Administrator David Pekoski earlier in the year. Episode 103. Another reason why electronic devices on planes headed to the U.S., were more closely scrutinized. And that's where we began our conversation with David Pekoski on January 30th. About a week or so ago, TSA made some changes to the cargo mm-hmm. uh, rules and regulations affecting uh, last point of departure uh, airports in, in, seven, in several countries. Right. Several airlines were impacted. Mm-hmm. Several airports were impacted. Mm-hmm. Give me your sense of why this is necessary now. Well, it's necessary based on intelligence information we have. And one of the things we do in TSA is we're constantly looking at at the threat and where the threat is trending. And uh, we had information that uh, caused us to look at our cargo security operations uh, at those five additional last point of departure airports. So we already have um, additional measures in place in one last point of departure uh, airport uh, in in one country. Uh, We added five countries to that that list. And now we have a total of six countries where we have these additional measures. And essentially what these additional measures are is we, we've always done screening of, of air cargo. When I say we, it's, it's uh, done uh, by the carriers uh, or by the carrier's agents for cargo destined for the United States. Um, these new measures gave us essentially advanced information on that cargo before it arrived uh, at the airport for loading on, on board the aircraft. And it's a system called the uh, Air Cargo uh, Advanced Screening System. It's a system that uh, has been put in place by Customs and Border Protection. And so essentially um, what we did is we made what is now a voluntary system, uh, a mandatory system for those last point of departure airports in those five additional countries. Give me your sense of what the threat environment is like now when it comes to airports and specifically in those places, some of those places. Overall, globally, but then in some places it's worse. Give me your overall view of the uh, threat environment right now. Well, we're, we're always super vigilant. Uh, you know, our job is to ensure that, that flights are safe and secure for, for passengers domestically here in the United States and passengers uh, en route to the United States. And in, in my almost six months as the TSA administrator, uh, I've seen um, the threat 
uh, information, it's, it's almost constant. You know, we, we're always assessing information that we receive, and, and really it's never let up uh, at all for aviation security. And, um, and so that, you know, our job is to make sure we stay on top of and, and a step or two or three, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, ahead of where we think that threat's headed. As it stands now, planes flying to the U.S. and inside the U.S. are safe from bombs. But when we think of planes and bombs in the U.S., we think back to 9-11, the attack on the World Trade Center. But many of us who've been around a while know that that was the second attack on the World Trade Center. The first one happened 25 years ago. It was a wintry day on February 26th, 1993, in New York City. Guy Tozzoli was late for a meeting. And the phone rang exactly at 11 o'clock. And my secretary said, uh, Mr. T, uh, uh, you haven't left yet. And I said, well, what's the matter? She said, well, you have a meeting at 12 o'clock with the people from Romania. And I said, gee, uh, take me an hour and 10 minutes. It'll take me 10 minutes to get ready. So I will leave the house at 10 after 11. I'll be in the garage between 12.15 and 12.20. The bomb that left a crater half the size of a football field in the garage of the World Trade Center went off at 12.17 p.m., which meant that just as he was pulling into the garage, the bomb would have gone off. I went my usual way to the George Washington Bridge down the West Side Highway, and that day on Friday was snowing a little bit. It was cold, very cold. I didn't take an hour and 10 minutes. I got into the garage in one hour. The lights were green. Not my fault and and not planned. I sped along as best I could, but not any different than I always did. But you know, you can't tell the lights are red sometimes and 10 minutes is not a lot of time. So instead of being in the garage between 12.15 and 12.20, I was in the garage at 12.10. He was lucky. The only six people killed were in the garage on that day. Tazzoli made a mistake that day that probably saved his life. He told his story to the 9-11 Museum Memorial staff, and so did Janine Ali. You felt the earth shake, felt the bomb. We didn't know what it was. You couldn't really see out the windows because it was it was a snowy, cold, foggy day, so you really couldn't tell what was going on. But even though people inside the building were unaware, the news had traveled very fast to people outside. At the time, my brother was working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and he called me, and he said, what the hell are you still doing there? They're evacuating your building. Get out. And then the phones went dead. And so did the power. So I ran over to our controller at the time, and I remember saying to him, you can stay if you want, but there's smoke pouring through the vents on our side of the floor. I'm getting out, and so are my people. The stairs were packed. You couldn't walk down a step until the person in front of you walked down a step. I mean, we were literally back to back to back. The person who is my best friend, I remember holding her hand, remember us counting because there wasn't the same number of steps on each landing and you couldn't see. So we would go, we were counting out loud and people were yelling at us for doing that. But we held each other. I held the rail, she was at the wall, and we would count, okay, this one's eight, this one's seven, this one's eight, this one's... And there were people up above, and we'd be yelling, we need some light. But, you know, there were very few flashlights, and it was pitch black. Pitch black. 
In the meantime, Guy Tazzoli had made it to his office and started the meeting that he was late for. 12.17, all of a sudden this terrible noise, the tower rocked, the lights went out in my office, and I continued the meeting. When I opened the door, the stairs were filled with people, and it was already smoky in there. And a man on the steps recognized me, and <laughs> he said, Guy, what the hell happened? I said, I don't know any more than you do. And somebody else said, who's he? And the fellow says, he built this place. Six people died in the explosion. More than a 1,000 were injured. And it wasn't until Janine Alley got to the PATH transit station that she realized what had happened. And when I got to the PATH station and called my husband to tell him I was home, that's when we found out it was a bomb, and I collapsed on the floor. Like that whole time, I don't know that we didn't talk about what it was, but to hear him say the word terrorists and bomb, my knees just, my legs went out completely from underneath me and I just collapsed in the, in the path station. First off, it wasn't surprising to me that uh, we had uh, this uh, tremendous act of terror on U.S. soil, uh, specifically in New York City. Fred Burton on that day was Deputy Chief of Counterterrorism at the State Department. Uh, I think, uh, you know, when I first started in the early 80s, uh, you could almost see the tempo and the pace of these attacks uh, uh, around the globe. And then, of course, um, uh, you know, we had the uh, assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahani uh, by an Egyptian uh, a killer by the name of Saeed Nosser, uh, which occurred. Uh, so uh, we knew we had this uh, group of we called Afghan Arabs at the time that were on the loose in New York City. And um, so the the attack on the World Trade Center uh, wasn't surprising. But from a practical standpoint, uh, you know, you, you immediately think of the times that you visited there. Uh, the U.S. Secret Service had a field office uh, inside the building. Uh, we had been there repeatedly on protective details and visits and so forth. So uh, it's one of those kinds of things that is uh, not surprising, but yet you still are uh, somewhat uh, shocked that it actually occurred. That shock still lingers with many today. The details in episode 107. And speaking of shock, something that happened in March of this year caught the entire planet off guard, at least all except those in the Kremlin. Russia's record of conducting state-sponsored assassinations and our assessment that Russia views some defectors as legitimate targets for assassinations, the government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. The attempted assassination of a former Russian spy and his daughter in the UK when we come back on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability, enabling faster, more assured decisions. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. 
As we continue our review of the biggest stories of 2018, episode 109 is near the top. Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were found slumped on a park bench in Salisbury in the UK on Sunday afternoon, March 4th, unconscious, suffering from exposure to an unidentified substance. On March 7th, police announced it was an attempted murder using an unknown chemical weapon. Aside from the Skripals, a police officer who responded to the attack became very ill as well. As many as 500 people who were in the area were advised to wash their clothing and possessions. Questions lingered about who did it and why. On March 12th, we got answers from British Prime Minister Theresa May. It is now clear that Mr. Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. This is part of a group of nerve agents known as Novichok. Based on the positive identification of this chemical agent by world-leading experts at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory at Porton Down, our knowledge that Russia has previously produced this agent and would still be capable of doing so, Russia's record of conducting state-sponsored assassinations, and our assessment that Russia views some defectors as legitimate targets for assassinations, the government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. Mr Speaker, there are therefore only two plausible explanations for what happened in Salisbury uh, on the 4th of March. Either this was a direct act by the Russian state against our country, or the Russian government lost control of its potentially catastrophically damaging nerve agent and allowed it to get into the hands of others. Either way, Russia could not escape the spotlight and the blame. The fact is, we have to just look at the bald facts of this, and Russia attacked Britain, essentially, with a weapon of mass destruction. Former CIA covert operative and cold warrior Robert Bayer. I, mean, I don't really care that it was a it was an ex-Russian intel officer who had defected. I mean, this is just extraordinary. I mean, this never occurred during the Cold War, ever. I mean, this guy would have been off limits completely. All of the intrigue of what happened to Sergei Skripal and his daughter and later in episode 109. One of the most riveting stories of the year was episode 110. That was the story of Bill Browder, the American-born British businessman who actually was deported from Russia, so the Russian government could steal his business. And he told us how it went down. And if you don't know already, that entire process led to something most of us are becoming very familiar with now. It's called the Magnitsky Act. Browder starts the story with what happened after he was deported and he sold his business. Um, we ended up with a very, very large profit um, on the sales. And we ended up paying to the Russian government. So we had a billion dollars of profit. And we paid to the Russian government $230 million of capital gains tax. And uh, uh, what happened, what Sergei had learned and, and discovered and through his investigation, was that the $230 million of, of taxes that we paid, the bad guys had gone with our stolen companies to the tax office and said, hey, there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing. Um, these companies... Um, didn't make a billion dollars, and they came up with some very complicated scheme to try to show that. They said, in fact, these companies made zero. 
And therefore, the $230 million of taxes that were paid last year was paid in error. And they asked for a $230 million tax refund, which was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. Mm -hmm. They applied for it on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas. And it was approved and paid out the next day, Christmas Eve. Mm. The largest tax refund in the history of Russia paid back in one day on a fraud. Browder believed that Vladimir Putin would welcome the work he'd done to expose the rampant corruption in the financial services sector in Russia. But Browder told Target USA he was seriously mistaken. You'll soon hear about it as he tells the story of what he and his legal team uncovered. His lawyer's name, Sergei Magnitsky, is important right now because of its significance in the special counsel's probe into alleged collusion in the 2016 presidential election. Sergei got back to you and told you what was going on, and then something happened to Sergei, correct? So Sergei told me what was going on. We decided together that Putin, is because he's a nationalist, if he knew that he, that, that, and I should point out, this was not my money that was stolen. This was the Russian government's money that was being stolen by Russian government officials. Mm-hmm. And we were both convinced that if the good guy, that if we brought this to the attention of the highest level in Russia, the good guys would get the bad guys, and that would be the end of this story. And so um, we, we wrote criminal complaints to every different branch of the criminal justice system. I went to the TV and radio and newspapers, and then Sergei went to the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their version of the FBI, and he gave sworn testimony against the police officers who conducted the raid. And we both sat back to wait for the good, waiting for the good guys to get the bad guys. And and uh, what we discovered was in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. Five weeks after the. Uh, uh, Sergei testified against these corrupt officials. The same officials he testified against came to his home at 8 in the morning on the 24th of no- November 2008. They arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention and where he was then tortured to get him to uh, withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers and to sign a false confession saying that he had stolen the $230 million on my instruction. Mm-hmm. And he refused to do that. You know, and this this torture you're talking about was, uh, you know, this was extreme stuff. Um, very small cells, sleep deprivation, no windows, no heat, no toilet, that kind of thing, uh, and c- constantly keeping him moving. And it made him sick. Is that correct? So, so they, they were they were ex- exposing him to more and more of this like really sort of sadistic torture and pressure in the hopes that he'd crack. He refused to crack. It just got more and more escalated and escalated. And um, about six months into this, he ended up developing terrible pains in his stomach. He was diagnosed as as having uh, pancreatitis and gallstones, and he had lost 40 pounds. And and he was supposed to have an operation on, on this pancreatitis and gallstones on the 1st of August, 2009. But a week before his operation, they came to him again and said, um, sign this false confession. Again, he refused. And then in retaliation, they abruptly moved him from the prison that had a medical wing to a a notorious maximum security prison called Butyrka, which is considered to be one of the most horrible prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, there was no um, medical wing at Butyrka. Mm -hmm. And at Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He He went into a constant agonizing downward spiral of pain 
all of his requests for medical attention were um, rejected. And um, on the night of November 16, 2009, he went into critical condition. And on that night, um, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they put him in an ambulance and sent him to a different prison facility that had a medical wing. But when the ambulance arrived, instead of putting him in the emergency room, <clears throat> the, um, they put him in an, in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat Sergei Magnitsky to death. Mm. That was uh, November 16, 2009, about eight years and four months ago. Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old. He left, left a wife and two children. Yeah. Sergei Magnitsky's death and Bill Browder's resolve to get justice for him has sprouted a global movement that's essentially led to numerous governments across the planet adopting the Magnitsky Act, which is a way to punish corrupt governments. One of the things that every government in the world does to try to stay abreast of what's going on around it, and certainly what its adversaries and even its friends are doing, is spying. And perhaps the most storied spying relationship in the world is the one between the U.S. and Russia. And on episode 114, we talked with John Seifer, another of those celebrated CIA spies who worked undercover in the Soviet Union and later in Russia. He talked to us about what the Russian spy presence is like in the U.S. today. For those of us in the, in, in the professional side, that's often very hard to see because they, they have somewhere on the order of 175 to 225 something spies in the United States. The United States has a handful, maybe a couple dozen or you know in Russia. So when they when we throw out 50, that means they're going to throw out 50 in ours and we're going to end up with small right. numbers and they're going to still have a quite a large number. So is that 200 and some number uh just a hypothetical number you're throwing out or is that uh, closer to the truth? It's closer to the truth. Um the Russians had a large presence here during the Cold War, but the FBI you know, understood during the Cold War that our main adversary was the Soviet Union and put a lot of resources on them. Uh, my understanding from talking to professionals and friends and others in the FBI is that, is that those numbers have grown over time. And so I certainly don't, you know, I don't go in and ask specific things since I've retired. That would be wrong. But but let's say the numbers are in the in the hundreds, at least 150 or more. It and, was before these expulsions. Well, that was my question. How do these expulsions and and even a better question, perhaps, is how does does the closure of a couple of these locations, several of these locations, including the one in Long Island, the one out in Maryland, the one in the consulate in San Francisco, and then again in Seattle, how does that impact their their espionage machine, their ability to do this work that, um, again, was pointed out in the assessment of their activities as being fairly significant. How does how, how does the closure uh, of those locations impact their, their ability to do what they want to do? I think there's there's two ways to look at this. One is those act, actions taken by the United States to put pressure on the Russian was to try to influence Vladimir Putin, to try to get him to change the way he does things. The closure of those and the kicking out of diplomats, I don't think has a large effect on him. I don't think he's going to change the way he does business because diplomats get thrown out. I think it's a price he's willing to pay. For the espionage apparatus and the work they do, it certainly makes it harder for them. It was very easy when they were traveling out to Maryland if, if the 
FBI didn't have enough surveillance resources to follow them, they could break off and go uh, get involved in espionage, maybe tap phone lines or what have you. Um, they uh, took that uh, consulate in San Francisco very seriously. If we, you know, we think about what's out there with the national labs in Silicon Valley and 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 you know, a lot of things on the West Coast that the Russians are very interested in, I think that was very important to them. So I do think the recent expulsions from 2017 and again in 2018 make it harder for the Russians. But again, we're we're an open society. It's easier for them to send people here undercover traveling and meet people and do things than it is for us to get into Russia, which has a very still very massive internal security apparatus where it's much harder for Americans to move freely around Russia Mm -hmm. and make contact. And again, speaking of Russia, our next story is about the now infamous Internet Research Agency, which continues to make news today. Episode 135. Good afternoon. On February 16th, in a stunning announcement, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein revealed that 13 Russian nationals and three Russian companies had been indicted by a grand jury impaneled by the special counsel investigating allegations of Russian government interference in the U.S. political system, including the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Twelve of the individual defendants worked at various times for a company called Internet Research Agency, LLC, a Russian company based in St. Petersburg. The other individual defendant, Yevgeny Viktorovich Bogosin, funded the conspiracy through companies known as Concord Management and Consulting, LLC, Concord Catering, and many affiliates and subsidiaries. Rosenstein said the sophisticated effort, which cost millions of dollars, began in 2014 and employed hundreds of people. My name is Marat Mindiyarov. I'm 43. I'm from Orenburg, but I do live nearby St. Petersburg now, and I'm a courier. Marat was one of those hundreds of people working at the Internet Research Agency on what Rosenstein said was called Project Lakta. On December 15, 2014, Marat began working at the now infamous Internet Research Agency building at 55 Soviskina Street in St. Petersburg, better known in the West as the Troll Factory. And coming up in my next report... I was curious what's going on inside of this um, building. The story of Marat Mindyarov, and you can hear the entire story in episode 135. Sticking with Russia, which, as I mentioned at the top, seemed to dominate all the headlines this year. And one of the most interesting stories we covered, if not the most interesting of the year, was the story of Paul Joyao. It actually happened in 2007, but now the significance of it is just becoming known. The story was a part of our series of podcasts called Assassins Incorporated. Episode 140 started us off. March 1st, 2007. It was a rainy, cold night in Adelphi, Maryland. Paul Joyal was returning home after a meeting with a friend at Zola, the swanky restaurant attached to the Spy Museum in downtown Washington. After pulling into his driveway about 7.30 that evening and stepping out of his car... There were two men waiting for me in the bushes. 
He was attacked from behind. I struggled with uh, the first man, the assailant. Joyal, a former federal law enforcement officer, took his attacker to the ground. The assailant called out to his accomplice for help, saying something Joyal will never forget. He said, shoot him. One shot from a 9mm pistol rang out, piercing his colon and bladder. The lights outside his house flew on. His dog started to bark. Panicked, the assailants tried to end the encounter and Joyal's life. Then they came in to shoot me again in the head and the gun jammed. The shooter cleared the weapon. He tried again and the gun jammed again. At that point, the attackers fled the scene. In the direction of the cemetery in back of my home. Once they entered the cemetery, they were never seen again. The case has never been solved. But Joyal had an idea who was behind it. And as he fought for his life that night, he asked his wife to make an urgent phone call. I made sure she called and alerted Oleg Kalugin. Oleg Kalugin, a former major general in the KGB who defected to the U.S., was the person that Joyal met for drinks at the spy museum. They had three key things in common. They were former business partners, they were critics of Vladimir Putin, and they were friends with Alexander Litvinenko. As investigators continue to scratch their heads about who did it, one key fact dominates their attention. Four days ahead of his shooting, Joyal and Kalugin appeared on a Dateline NBC program titled, Who Killed? Alexander Litvinenko. They both pointed the finger at the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. Curiously, two other people who appeared on that program talking about Russia's assassins turned up dead. Boris Berezovsky found hanged in his bathroom in London, and Daniel McGrory, a London Times reporter, had a heart attack. That's a look at some of the most interesting stories from Target USA this year. It's been a busy year, but if all goes well in 2019, it's going to be even busier. Our first guest is someone you won't want to miss hearing from. In my opinion, um, I believe the FBI uh, feels um, strongly that it's not that Russia and China have uh, been raising the bar. They raised the bar several years ago. We are already uh, behind the curve, so to speak. Uh, both have very strong presence in the United States. Both have different uh, um, uh, types of operations and agendas. Nancy McNamara the assistant director in charge of the Washington field office of the FBI. That's it for this episode and for Target USA in 2018. Thanks for allowing us into your ears and into your life. I'm grateful you took the time to hear what we had to say, and thanks to you, we're up to 1.5 million downloads and still going strong. So if you haven't subscribed, please do. And tell your friends and colleagues about it. Also, let me know what you think. If you have any comments, shoot me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. That's jgreen at wtop.com. And follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. Thanks. 
and happy holidays. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C-4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.